The topic today is one of some sensitivity, and uh, I just want to ask you guys to, to do a favor for me this morning, and by that I mean this. Uh, stick with me. Hold with me in this teaching. Don't give up on the teaching. Don't run out. And I didn't mean that literally, although maybe I should say, please, don't leave the building. Uh, wait. Let's see where the Lord takes us in this to the end of it, please. Uh, and, and I think when we get to the end of it, We'll, be, we'll all be in a position to understand the scriptures better and with grace, but I also, uh, I know that we need to sort of take this with sensitivity and I hope you'll um, work with me in that. So with that preface, let's go into scripture. I'll pray and then we'll open up in the scripture this morning. Father, give us uh, grace this morning, grace to understand the, the text and grace to accept what we hear. Grace, Father, for those around us who, as they hear it, may think differently than us. And thank you, Father, that we are united by a spirit and not by our knowledge. We're united by a common faith, not by a common understanding. Knit us together in your word today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I said, we begin chapter 19. And rather than a lot of review, this is actually a new scene. So rather than review, let's just dive into what happens in chapter 19. And I'll start reading in verse one. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? All right, well, right out of the gate, Matthew drops us into a discussion of marriage and divorce. And before we get into the topic itself, I want to set the scene for you for why this discussion even happens at this point. At the end of chapter 17, two chapters ago, we were at the point where Jesus had returned to Capernaum with his disciples, and they were in Peter's house. Remember, that's when the tax collectors came knocking at the door. And Capernaum is a a small fishing village. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And as you know, that's where Jesus made his home of ministry for the three years that he was working on earth in ministry. And now we reach the beginning of chapter 19 and Matthew says Jesus is on the move again. And he goes south this time. I'll show you a map behind me. He goes south from Capernaum toward Jericho, which lies in the Jordan River Valley. And then the text says he crosses over beyond the Jordan, which means he ends up on the east side of the Jordan River, present day Jordan, the nation of Jordan. And he gets into a territory that was known in his day as Perea. And while he's in this area, we're told he's being followed by large crowds, which of course is something we've seen now. And he's healing them, although we don't know the circumstances of that. And I should add just as a brief aside that it's pretty exceptional to have a crowd follow you like this in that day. You know, celebrities as we see them today didn't exist in that day. You know, if somebody was rich and powerful, you didn't adore them and follow them, you feared them. And so you generally avoided them. And so as, as you see these crowds assembling behind Jesus, this is a truly extraordinary period of history. Nothing like it had ever happened before in Israel, and I, I imagine nothing like it has ever happened since. And that is why Pharisees were really so disturbed at Jesus' ministry. Because when one man can command that kind of adoration, it, 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 it's the makings of a revolution. And a revolution would surely have got the attention of Rome sooner or later. And if so, it likely would have brought an end to the power-sharing arrangement between Rome and the Pharisees. That is, the Romans would eventually have decided, this guy's too dangerous to let continue doing this. We gotta step in and stop it. And so the Pharisees are opposing Jesus 
Not so much for religious reasons, really more because they're concerned about losing their way of life. And that's why you see, as we heard, that while Jesus is relatively close to Jerusalem, the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to Perea and they confront Jesus with a test. You notice in verse three, Matthew says, the question they ask him is intended to be a testing of him. And what they ask him is to render his opinion on the conditions for divorce. That is, under what circumstances is divorce permitted? Now, before we look at that, why would they even care what he thought? Or for that matter, why would the answer be in doubt? Wouldn't we have expected by this point that the rabbis of Israel would have settled this question? It's such a fundamental question. Uh, It affects everyday life in so many ways. Why wouldn't this have already been settled law? Well, there's an old joke that says if you ask three rabbis the same question, how many different opinions will you get? And the answer is 10. And it's characteristic of rabbinical thought. They would play with ideas and work it out in a, a multitude of ways, which ended up becoming different opinions that contested, contended with one another to know which one is true. And so that's the situation you have here in Jesus' day. Rabbinical thought on the question of marriage and divorce uh, fell largely into two camps by that point in history. There was a conservative view within rabbinical teaching, and that view thought that there was only one reason possible for divorce, and that was marital unfaithfulness. And then there was a liberal view, and the liberal view taught that basically any offense was grounds for divorce, and literally in rabbinical teaching, from the liberal point of view, you found reasons to include if a woman burned the soup that she gave her husband, that was grounds for divorce. That's not a job, I mean, that was literally a, a rule. Now, if you have that kind of rule, then you know basically anything goes, right? So the Conservative view, very limited. Liberal view, very open. So when you see the Pharisees asking Jesus to render his opinion on this matter, what they're effectively asking him to do is pick a side. Are you on the conservative side of this issue or the liberal side? Notice verse three, it says, they're posing it as a test. So whichever way he answers this question, he's either gonna affirm one group or the other and obviously alienate the one he doesn't select. But here's the thing. The test was not which side he would pick. The test that they're proposing and the test that they've orchestrated here, the trap that they're setting for Jesus here is an attempt to get him to upset the Romans. And what do I mean by that? Well, notice on the map again, Jesus is in Perea. And Perea is one of two regions within Judea under the control of Herod Antipas. Next slide. Now, Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And as such, he inherited part of his father's territory when his father died. Among the sons of Herod, his sons split up the territory of Judea, and Herod Antipas got the areas in purple up there. You notice one of those areas is the area that Jesus is now in. And Herod Antipas is best known in the scriptures for his conflict with John the Baptist. Remember back in Matthew 14, we learned how Herod had imprisoned and ultimately beheaded John the Baptist. And the reason he did it was because John had offended Herod by publicly accusing him of entering into an unlawful marriage. You remember Herod Antipas' brother, another ruler of the day, was Herod Philip. And Herod Philip had a wife called Herodias. And Herod Antipas took a liking to his brother's wife and made her his wife. And when he did that, John the Baptist called it for what it was. He said it was adultery and it was unlawful. And that's what put him to death. Now, Jesus has entered into that same territory, Herod Antipas' territory. So the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus into making the same mistake, if you will, that John did by saying something against the arrangement between Herod and Herodias. 
Now, obviously, Jesus is not worried about whether uh, Herod gets mad at him. He knows he's not going to die at the hands of Herod Antipas. So what Jesus does in response to the question is he answers it, and he answers it according to the standard of Scripture, which I should add is very conservative. Verse 4, he answered them and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, so Jesus begins his answer here. It the place you have to begin in any discussion of marriage, and that place is in the creation account itself. The very design of the male and female bodies hint at the union that God would later establish and call marriage. God designed man's body and woman's body to join together physically in a very clear and obvious way. And moreover, they have to join together in that way if they're going to obey God's command to procreate and fill the earth. So Jesus starts by saying the design of the human body as made by its creator intended that man and woman would pair up and form a union called marriage. But moreover, the way God created man and woman also makes clear that he intended that union to be inseparable. What do I mean? Well, if you think back to the creation account, God did not create two people independently from raw materials, and then after they both existed independently, turn to them and say, okay, now you guys should hitch up. What did he do? Instead, he created the man first, and then He created the woman from flesh taken out of the man. And by creating woman in that way, Adam's marriage to his wife was literally the reuniting of flesh. That is, Jesus says in verse six, anytime a husband and a wife join together, they are no longer two but one flesh. That is, in God's eyes, a husband and wife constitute not the union of flesh, but the reunion of flesh. And when you remember that you and I descend from those same two people, every time a husband and wife get together again in marriage, they're repeating exactly the same thing that happened to Adam and woman. It's a reuniting of flesh. Your flesh traces its origin back to Adam. Her flesh traces its origin back to Adam. It's literally two flesh coming back together again. And the fact that God designed and initiated the creation of humanity in that unique way tells us his intention was marriage would be a coming together of two into one. And that's why Jesus says in verse six, what God has joined in this way, let no man separate. Now my English translation is is a little unhelpful there because in the way it's rendered in English, it almost sounds as if Jesus is pleading with us not to separate it, but that's not the sense of it in Greek. A better translation would be no man may separate or may no man separate. In other words, he's expressing the impossibility of separating the two. Because God originated the one flesh relationship through the manner of creation itself, there is no earthly mechanism to end that relationship. Mankind simply does not possess the authority or the ability to end that one flesh relationship no more than we can cut our own physical body in half and still live. Therefore, on the question of divorce, what Jesus says is, you need to go back to the creation to understand that marriage establishes a one flesh relationship. 
Now I gotta explain something that I think many people don't understand about marriage at this point because at this point you would start to ask the logical questions that the Pharisees themselves will ask in just a moment. But before we look at it, we have to understand something that's critical. You have to understand that the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce requires that we distinguish between two different aspects of marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, first, marriage is a covenant that's established between a man and a woman through the exchange of vows. But then, after that marriage covenant is in place, a second aspect of marriage kicks in, and that is the one flesh relationship that is established not by the vows, but by the physical union of man and woman, what we would say is consummating the marriage. Those two aspects, that is the marriage covenant and the consummation of the marriage are distinct, and in fact, you can have one without the other. It's possible to have a marriage covenant without a one flesh relationship. It is also possible to have a one flesh relationship without entering into a marriage covenant. For example, if two people engage in sex before marriage, which the Bible calls fornication, they are not establishing a marriage because they are not entering into a covenant. No vows are exchanged, no intentions are made. It is merely an immoral sexual act done outside of marriage. However, that act does form a one flesh relationship. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for it says two shall become one flesh? So a man who joins himself, as Paul says, with a prostitute or has a one night stand or whatever, establishes a one flesh relationship. But because it's not accompanied by marriage vows, it is an immoral act and not a substitute for marriage, nor does it constitute marriage. Likewise, you can have a marriage, a covenant agreement, without a one flesh relationship. And these are more oddball cases, but you've probably heard of situations where someone might marry someone who's on their deathbed or in prison or deploys for war on the very moment the ceremony is over. And as a result, uh, there's not an opportunity in the moment to consummate the marriage, and then maybe that person dies later so that it never happens. Well, in that case, you did have a marriage covenant because there were vows exchanged, but that one flesh relationship was never established. So typical biblical marriage involves two things, a marriage covenant formed by the exchange of vows and a one flesh relationship formed by a physical union which itself is made possible by the marriage vows. The distinction between those two aspects of marriage has some important implications on the topic of divorce because a marriage covenant can end in divorce, but a legal divorce cannot end a one flesh relationship. A marriage covenant can end, but a one flesh relationship only God can create and no one can separate. So when a divorce happens, the marriage covenant is in fact dissolved. The marriage is no longer. But the one flesh relationship goes on. Virtually all disagreements over the matter of divorce in the Bible, in churches, in my experience, are the result of a failure to distinguish between those two aspects of marriage. And in this case, that is exactly the mistake that the Pharisees are making. Look in verse seven. They say to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, here's what the Pharisees are doing. 
They're challenging Jesus by quoting from the law, from Deuteronomy 24, in which, in that part of Deuteronomy, Moses gives instructions to Israel about how divorce can take place. And let me just read you the first verse of that law. Chapter 24, verse one. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out from his house. And it goes on for there with a few more conditions, but the point is, Moses allowed men to issue this thing called a dis- divorce certificate, which he could do if he found some indecency, it says, in his wife. Now, the Hebrew word for indecency is erhwa, and erhwa just means nakedness, literally. So the implication is marital infidelity. So the law allowed a man to divorce his wife if she was unfaithful to him. And the Pharisees logically point to this law and they challenge Jesus' claim that no man can separate marriage. Well, if that's true, then what about this? Why would this be in the law if no man can separate? But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't saying no man can end a marriage covenant. Like any covenant, a marriage covenant can be broken. Covenants are made and covenants are broken. That's not the problem. And divorce is the legal mechanism for ending a covenant of marriage. Jesus was saying the one flesh relationship which results from marriage, now that cannot be ended. And his point is this, you're focusing on the wrong aspect of marriage. The Pharisees were debating conditions for ending the covenant and Jesus is saying arguing over how to end a marriage covenant is irrelevant if you realize that the permanence of the one flesh relationship is the important part. So Jesus says in verse eight, let me tell you what the real reason is that God gave you this ability to divorce, so that is to end the, the marriage covenant. And he says this in verse eight. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus says, Moses didn't command divorce. You notice the change in words? They said Moses commanded in in their question. Jesus changed it and said Moses permitted. Before we look at the issue itself, just don't run past that change in wording because what he's making clear here is Moses didn't command you to divorce. There's a big difference between commanding divorce and permitting divorce. Nowhere does God command divorce. And in fact, the entire thrust of scripture is in the opposite direction. You should do everything in your power to avoid divorce. And even if there are circumstances in Scripture that allow divorce, please don't take that as an encouragement to divorce. Next, he says, the reason divorce was permitted in the law was as a response to the sin of husbands who were unforgiving of their wives. And he calls it a hardness of heart. What he's referring to here is a sinful practice that was common among men in that culture in that day. And in that day, men possessed all power in marriage. Uh, The women had no legal rights, They they really couldn't enter into a covenant on their own. They certainly couldn't end a covenant on their own. So in that set of circumstances, the man had all the power, and if a husband wanted to get rid of his wife, for whatever reason, there was very little to stop him from doing it. He could just send his wife outside her home, just literally make her homeless, abandon her, make her destitute. And her only hope for survival under those circumstances would have been for some other man to take her in and care for her. She had nowhere to go. She had no means of support. And here's the problem. Before another man could take her in and be her rescuer, 
that man would have needed an assurance from the first husband that this woman was no longer married because if she's still married to him, he can't take her in, then he'd be guilty of adultery. And adultery was punishable by death in that day. So it was a serious matter. So if she's still married and no man can care for her, a hard-hearted husband has basically condemned her wife to a very terrible death. Or maybe uh, to be abused by evil men. It's just not a good situation. And so Jesus says, this provision of divorce was an accommodation for the sin of men. By accommodation, I do not mean a license to sin or an approval of sin. There is a principle in the law, you'll see it here in other places as well, in which God has given provisions to Israel to handle certain situations that are themselves the result of sin. He does so as a matter of grace, as a mitigation strategy, for to do nothing would only make things worse. And so on balance, it's turning a bad situation into something a little better, but without the intention of authorizing or endorsing sin. This is one of those cases that had the law not allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce, would you think then that the men would just stop sending their wives away? Now, don't be foolish. No, the men would have done exactly what they wanted to do anyway, and they would have sent a wife out with no provision for a future husband, and it would have meant many women abused and dying as a result of hard-hearted husbands. If that's one option to God, his other option is, I'll give him the mechanism to issue a divorce decree so that at least she is free to remarry, and if so, at least that might save her life. And on balance, saving women's lives was grace that God wanted to offer. Not because it was the way God wanted marriage to go, but because the alternative was a bunch of hard-hearted men killing their wives. All right, so Jesus tells the Pharisees, that's why that provision exists. And he says, while a divorce may end that marriage and make possible a new one, it doesn't end the one flesh relationship, which is why he goes the next step in verse nine, and he says, even after that divorce has ended that marriage, any remarriage is an act of adultery. And we know why a remarriage becomes an act of uh, adultery now, because of the two aspects of marriage. If you've ever read this and wondered, well, if it is in fact a divorce, then why is remarriage adultery? Isn't a divorce the end of a marriage? How can you be caused, you know, committing adultery if you've ended a marriage? That seems contradictory. Well, now you understand why. The covenant ended, yes. The one flesh relationship can't end. Simply put, you can't undo what was done. You can't undo the physical act. It happened, and as a result, it established something that can't be undone. And that's why Jesus says it becomes an act of adultery. Paul says the only way you end a one flesh relationship is by the physical death of one or the other people in the marriage. He says in Romans 7, 2, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. That's why in our marriage vows we say until death do us part. Paul says the only way to be free, to remarry, is to wait until your first spouse dies because only then is the flesh gone that you have become one flesh with. Now, I'm sure you noticed in verse nine that Jesus inserts an exception. So let us spend a moment on that. Jesus says there is a situation in which a man and a wife could be married and then divorce, and then remarriage would still be possible after that divorce. And that one situation, he says, is in the case of immorality. Now, the Greek word for immorality there is porneia. It's the same word from which we get words like pornography. It just means sexual sin. 
immorality, generally sexual immorality. What's interesting though is that Greek word porneia is never used in the New Testament for adultery. In fact, notice in verse nine the words immorality and adultery both appear in that same verse. Those are different Greek words. So the question then becomes, what is this specific situation that Jesus is talking about when he says immorality? And as you probably know, the most common teaching in the church would tell you that Jesus is referring to any kind of sexual unfaithfulness in marriage to include adultery. Most often that's what we think of. And that if that takes place, if you are a married couple and your spouse commits adultery or some form of sexual unfaithfulness, that becomes grounds biblically for your divorcing that person and for remarrying someone else. I'm gonna tell you I don't agree with that interpretation. And the reason I don't agree in that interpretation is for a couple reasons. First, if engaging in an extramarital affair ended the one flesh relationship, which is what we're implying, well then it would say we can separate what God has joined together. We just have to have an affair. Once we have an affair, we end what God has joined. And Jesus says you can't. There's no man that can separate that union. And secondly, when Jesus says except for immorality, I think he's speaking, speaking about a very specific situation. And that situation is this. In Jesus' day, it was normal to establish a marriage covenant, that first part of the marriage, and then there'd be a period of time pass before the one flesh relationship would follow. And in some cases, that time would be weeks or months or even years. So the first step of establishing a marriage covenant in Jesus' day was called a betrothal. Now, betrothal is not an engagement. A betrothal is a legal marriage covenant. It is the establishing of marriage in that moment. Vows are taken, dowry is paid, a covenant is established. A true marriage exists from the very moment of a betrothal. But the couple does not consummate the marriage right away. In fact, they may never have even met. It may be arranged for them. After a period of time goes by while the husband is preparing a home for his bride, they're waiting, they're separate, they're apart, they are married, but they are not yet together as one flesh. And then at some point after that, they will finish the process with a marriage consummation and then they are one flesh. That was common in Jesus' day. Now, if during that waiting time between the marriage covenant and the one flesh moment, if, if in that middle port time there, one of them was unfaithful to the other, then in that situation, it was grounds for divorce. The one could divorce the, the other, and because the one flesh relationship had not yet been established, they could remarry. And that's exactly the situation Joseph thought that he was facing when Mary turned up pregnant during their betrothal period. That's why in Matthew 1.19, we're told that Joseph, being a righteous man, decided to divorce Mary secretly to spare her shame, remember? You notice he had to divorce her. They were betrothed. They were married. There was a divorce requirement. But because they had not yet had intimate relations, she was still a virgin, they had not established one flesh. He could have remarried under those circumstances. I believe that's the exception that Jesus is referring to. It's the only one that fits all of the data. It's the only one that holds to the sanctity of a one flesh relationship rule. And under those circumstances, then you'd see remarriage. So, if we find ourselves in a situation where a marriage covenant exists without a one flesh relationship, which admittedly would be very rare in our day, then, and only then, are we eligible to divorce and remarry should a sexual sin take place. But for all other cases, when one flesh exists, then Jesus' standard rule would apply, there is no remarriage after divorce. And Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking to the church, he says, 1 
10, to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul says the best option, and probably it's obvious, stay married. If you divorce, then the next best option, reconcile. And if you cannot reconcile, then the only remaining option is do not marry again, there is no fourth option. And Paul emphasizes this instruction is from the Lord, which is his way of saying, I'm actually quoting Jesus' words. And it's my belief that he's quoting Matthew 19. So to summarize Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, the biblical rule is that divorce is not permissible except for sexual immorality. If divorce happens before a one flesh relationship has been established, then remarriage would be possible. If divorce happens after a one flesh relationship has been established, remarriage is not permissible until death. And should someone choose to remarry after a one flesh relationship has been established, that person would commit adultery. Now, I asked you to hang with me. We're not done. Hang with me a little longer, please. Because you may ask me at this point about a lot of different situations. You might ask me about all manner of variations on divorce and remarriage and what about reasons other than sexual immorality? What about an abusive marriage? What about unending strife? What about children in danger? What about reconciliation not being possible? What if my spouse, ex-spouse is already remarried? And the list goes on. And I'll tell you now, I don't have answers for every possible situation, even if I might have some. And I would also say this is not the right time or forum for me to try to launch into a list of exceptions or reasons. I can say a few things. I can say certainly under some circumstances, you would want a couple to separate. I mean, if a wife is in danger of her husband or if children are in danger, yes, separate, get away from that. There's no biblical expectation that you should have to subject yourself to that kind of danger. And I would also add that in the worst of cases, a legal divorce may be the best response to a bad situation, which I think is in keeping with the spirit of Deuteronomy 24. But even then, remarriage is not possible because a one flesh relationship persists. Now, if you're a little shocked at this, and I don't know how many of you have heard teaching of this before, whether you've heard the more conventional teaching, and you're sitting there thinking, man, this, this doesn't sound right, or it can't be true, or this is pretty hard to accept, well, you're not alone. Just look at what the disciples say next. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, well, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who were made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. All right, so... If hearing this teaching today was a shock to you and the first time you've heard it, can you imagine them? They're hearing it for the first time too. I mean, Jesus just took the conservative view and went further with it. And as a result, they respond, you know, Jesus, if this is truly God's expectation for a relationship between a wife and a husband, you know, it's probably better we just remain single. And you know, there is something to that. That is to say, if you only get one marriage per life and the potential for picking the wrong person is there, better not to pick at all. Better to live alone than risk getting hitched to someone who makes your life miserable, especially if you can't separate from them. Well, there is some truth to that, but Jesus actually rejects that because they've taken a very low view of marriage. Jesus 
disagrees with that suggestion, and he says, in fact, there really are only a few who could live by that standard. That is to say, there's only a few of us who are in a position to say, life as a single person is preferable than life in a married state. And he gives three examples. There are three groups that Jesus said will not enter into a one flesh relationship, and he calls them eunuchs, and that's euphemistic for the most part. A eunuch, as you may know, is a man who's been castrated, and that's not a literal in all three cases here. He's using it as a way of expressing someone who does not enter into a one flesh relationship. Remember the key, this whole passage is keyed on one flesh relationships, that's the issue. The issue isn't the legality of a divorce or a marriage covenant, that's the beginning. The real issue is the one flesh relationship that is established after that, that's the binding part. And Jesus says, there are those, for example, who are born, unable to enter into a one flesh relationship. And we could imagine scenarios in people who have various mental or, or physical limitations that prevent them from ever being able to enter into a one flesh relationship. There, there are those, and clearly they would remain single. And then he says, there are also those who are prevented from entering into a one flesh relationship because they are made eunuchs. And here he is talking about the literal. Those who would enter into service to a king, and this is why this happened, uh, a man who had an a, a important position, and he might have a wife or even a harem back in that day, and he had someone guarding that wife or guarding that harem. He didn't want the guard to take advantage of the women, so he would castrate the guards as a way of ensuring they would not do the wrong thing. And so, obviously, once that's taken place, you're not entering into a one-flesh relationship anymore. And then thirdly, Jesus said, there are some who might choose... And this is to the issue that the disciples raised, this idea of choosing not to marry. And he says, the only reason you would do that is because of the kingdom, which is his way of saying, if you have a spiritual gift of singleness, God giving you spiritually a contented heart to be without a one flesh relationship. And it has to be a gift because it's not the natural state of our hearts. God's natural state of humanity is that we would seek out the affections and comforts of marriage and look forward to that, and as we should. But if you say to yourself, I don't want to take the risk of marrying someone now that I know how God views marriage because I want to keep my options open, you're lying to yourself because what you're saying, in effect, is I want to seek out the comforts of marriage without the obligations of marriage, and you can't do that. That's sin. And so, unless you have the gift of singleness, which leaves you content to never engage in a one flesh relationship, you should seek marriage in its time, and you should enjoy it for what it's there for, and go out, never go outside it. Now, as we reach the point that we're at in this teaching, I am fully aware that not everyone will agree with my interpretation of Jesus' words, particularly uh, in the case of that exception. You, you may be holding to uh, the more common view that I mentioned, that is that Jesus' exception was actually speaking about marital infidelity, adultery in other words, and as such you may view adultery as a legitimate biblical reason to divorce and remarry without worry. And I acknowledge the possibility that you may be right. That is, perhaps Jesus was teaching that any sexual unfaithfulness in marriage ends a one flesh relationship and therefore permits remarriage. And because my interpretation may be incorrect, then as a pastor, I have to tread lightly in this area. Because if I'm wrong about this text, that is, if my interpretation is wrong and the common view is correct, and I act on it too strongly, what it means is I could direct people incorrectly in matters of divorce and remarriage, 
And that would have serious repercussions. You know, I'm, I could be standing in the way of a God-ordained marriage, and I don't want to do that. So when we find reasonable possibilities for differences of opinion in the interpretation of Scripture, there's not often, they, it's not like this is on every verse of the Bible, but when we find that, then we give grace. And in this case, that means in Matthew 19.9, there is room for disagreement on the issue of what Jesus meant by accept for immorality. So if you believe that Matthew 19.9 is Jesus saying you can divorce and remarry in the case of any marital unfaithfulness, we accept your view. That is to say, agreement with my view is not a requirement at verse-by-verse fellowship for fellowship, for service, or even for leadership. There is room here for two views. I, I believe the view I take is correct, and I defend it as such, but I could be wrong. And I say that to you because I want you to understand if you are somebody who has come through any of these circumstances, I don't want you to sit here today thinking that because I have this particular view that we see you or I see you differently. I think we have a tendency to treat this issue differently in the body of Christ than we do other areas, and I don't know why. You know, we may be quick to remember God is against divorce, and then we're just as quick to forget that God is equally against anything that is a sin, right? Divorce doesn't sit in its own category. It's not a special sin. It's not a special problem. It is just another of what we all experience in life, which is things that don't go the way God wants. And I think if we're not careful as a body, we can get into a pattern of treating some things more seriously or, or, or singling things out in ways that it's not helpful. Look, friends, it's no con- coincidence that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce follows immediately after his teaching on forgiveness. Don't, don't forget that. We all need forgiveness more than we ever know. None of us have unforgivable sins. And moreover, we cannot single out one person's kind of mistake and hold it above any other. We cannot become a judge of everyone else's problems for getting our own. I think the nature of judgment is such that it puts us in a position of superiority looking down on someone else. I found it impossible to judge somebody else when your own sin is on your mind. And so the solution to judgment is to think about yourself first. So look, mistakes happen in marriage. Sometimes not by our desire, not by our choice. Sometimes we are a victim of someone else's choices. Sometimes we play a part in it, maybe. But no matter what happens in marriage, no matter what happens in any area of our life as a Christian, it is forgiven by the blood of Christ. And if Christ has forgiven us of it, as we learned last week, we forgive each other of it. You are not defined by your past. If you have divorce in your past, you're not a divorcee. You're a Christian. If you have lying in your past, if you have theft in your past, if you have fornication in your past, those things do not define you. Your sin has been separated from you as far as the East is from the West. And as a body of believers who share that background, share that need for grace, we must extend it to everyone else as well. So no one carries a stigma here. Uh, You are not beyond the grace of God. You are who you are by the grace of God. So I'd say to you, if you are married today, honor God by remaining faithful to that marriage regardless of your past circumstances in marriage or otherwise. Just honor your marriage today and you're pleasing Christ. If you are divorced, then my instruction would be remain unmarried. If you feel Matthew 19.9 gives you license to remarry, we do not judge that. Do as you feel led by your conscience. If you are remarried after a divorce, 
You are not judged here. You are who you are in Christ with a spouse that is now the one you love and honor for the rest of your life, and that's the right response. And all of us need to show grace whenever we deal with others whose lives aren't perfect because ours are no different. I hope with all that you've heard today, and I appreciate you sticking with me to the end of it, I hope with all you've heard today, you've not only heard the truth as I understand it, but you've also heard it in the grace that we have to have as a body if we're ever going to stay united in the mission that God's given us, right? Because if, if we are divided by what the word of God says, who can stay together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, guide us all, Father, in a better understanding of what you want in our lives of marriage, but in general as well. And Father, I pray that as we contemplate and reflect on what we've learned, you'll correct my errors, where they may be. You'll give us the insight we need to honor and please you as you have called us. And we will not judge others, whatever they hold in their views. For Father, we all see things imperfectly, dimly as looking through a clouded glass, and we long for a day we'll stand before you and see it all perfectly clear. And until that day, Father, grace reigns. We pray for grace. Thank you for a church that preaches the Bible, and thank you for a community that gives grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.